Part 1, Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 5, Part 2. 3. Number 6, Romney Studios, Manresa Road, Chelsea, was at the end of the narrow alley, which, running at right angles to the road, had a blank wall on its left and Romney Studios on its right. The studios themselves were nondescript shanties, which reminded George of nothing so much as the office of a clerk of the works, nailed together anyhow on ground, upon which a large building is in course of erection. They were constructed of brick, wood, waterproof felting, and that adaptable material, corrugated iron. No two were alike. None had the least pretension to permanency, comeliness, or even architectural decency. They were all horribly hot in summer, and they all needed immense stoves to render them habitable in winter. In putting them up, however, cautiously and one by one, the landlord had esteemed them to be the sort of thing that was good enough for artists, and that artists would willingly accept. He had not been mistaken. Though inexpensive, they were dear, but artists accepted them with eagerness. None was ever empty. Thus it was demonstrated once more that artists were exactly what capitalists and other sagacious persons had always accused them of being. When George knocked on the door of number six, the entire studio, and number five also, vibrated. As a rule, Ag, the female Cerberus of the shanty, answered any summons from outside. But George hoped that tonight she would be absent. He knew by experience that on Sunday nights she usually paid a visit to her obstreperous family in Alexandra Grove. The door was opened by a young man in a rich but torn and soiled 18th-century costume, and he looked, in the half-light of the entrance, as though he was just recovering from a sustained debauch. The young man stared haughtily in silence. Only after an appreciable hesitation did George see through the disguise and recover himself sufficiently to remark with the proper nonchalance, "'Hello, Ag. What's the meaning of this?' "'You're before your time,' said she, shutting the door. While he took off his overcoat, Ag walked up the studio. She made an astonishingly lifelike young man. George and Ag were now not unfriendly, but each constantly criticised the other in silence, and both were aware of the existence of this vast body of unspoken criticism. Ag criticised more than George, who had begun to take the attitude that Ag ought to be philosophically accepted as incomprehensible, rather than criticised. He had not hitherto seen her in male costume, but he would not exhibit any surprise. "'Where's Marguerite?' he inquired, advancing to the stove and rubbing his hands above it. "'Restrain your ardour,' said Ag lightly. "'She'll appear in due season. I've told you, you're before your time.' George offered no retort. Despite his sharp walk, he was still terribly agitated and preoccupied, and the phenomena of the lamplit studio had not yet fully impressed his mind. He saw them, including Ag, as hallucinations gradually turning to realities. He could not be worried with Ag. His sole desire was to be alone with Marguerite immediately, and he regarded the fancy costume chiefly as an obstacle to the fulfilment of that desire, because Ag could not depart until she had changed it for something else. Then his gaze fell upon a life-size oil sketch of Ag in the 18th-century male dress. The light was bad, but it disclosed the sketch sufficiently to enable some judgment on it to be formed. The sketch was exceedingly clever, 
painted in the broad, synthetic manner which Steer and Sickert had introduced into England as a natural reaction from the finicky, false exactitudes of the previous age. It showed Ag, glass in hand, as a leering, tottering young drunkard in frills and velvet. The face was odious, but it did strongly resemble Ag's face. The hair was replaced by a bag wig. Who did that? I did, of course, said Ag. She pointed to the large mirror at the opposite side of the studio. The dickens you did, George murmured, struck. But now that he knew the sketch to be the work of a woman, he at once became more critical, perceiving in it imitative instead of original qualities. What is it? I mean, what's the idea at the back of it, if it isn't a rude question, Ag? Title, Bonnie Prince Charlie, said Ag, without a smile. She was walking about in a convincingly masculine style. Unfortunately, she could not put her hands in her pockets, as the costume was without pockets. "'Is that your notion of the gent?' "'Didn't you know I'm supposed to be very like him?' cried Ag, vain. The stern creature had frailties. Then she smiled grimly. "'Look at my cold blue eyes, my sharp chin, my curly-curly lips, my broad forehead, my clear complexion. And I hope I'm thin enough. Look!' She picked up the bag wig, which was lying on a chair, and put it on, and posed. The pose was effective. You seem to know a lot about this, Charlie. Well, our beloved brother Sam is writing a monograph on him, you see, besides everyone. But what's the idea? What's the scheme? Why is he drunk? He always was drunk. He was a confirmed drunkard at thirty. Both his fair ladies had to leave him because he was just a violent brute. And so on and so on. I thought it was about time Charlie was shown up in his true colours. And I'm doing it. After all the sugar-stick academy pictures of him, my picture will administer a much-needed tonic to our dear public. I expect I can get it into next year's New English Art Club, and if I do, it will be the sensation of the show. I haven't done with it yet. In fact, I only started yesterday. There's going to be a lot more realism in it. All those silly Jacobite societies will furiously rage together. And it's a bit of pretty good painting, you know. It is, George agreed. But it's a wild scheme. Not so wild as you think, my minstrel boy. It's very much needed. It's symbolic, that picture is. It's a symbolic antidote. Shall I tell you what put me on to it? Look here. She led him to Marguerite's special work table under the curtained window. There, on a sheet of paper stretched upon a drawing board, was the finished design which Marguerite had been labouring at for two days. It was a design for a bookbinding, and the title of the book was the Womanly Woman, and the author of the book was Sir Amurath Onway, M.D., D.S.C., F.R.S., a famous specialist in pathology. Marguerite, under instruction from the bookbinders, had drawn a sweet picture, in quiet colours, of a womanly woman in a tea-gown, sitting in a cosy corner of a boudoir. The volume was destined to open the spring season of a publishing firm of immense and historic respectability. Look at it! Look at it! Ag insisted. I've read the book myself. Poor Marguerite had to go through the proofs, so that she could be sure of getting the spirit of the binding right. Do you know why he wrote it? He hates his wife, that's why. His wife isn't a womanly woman, and he puts all his hatred of her into this immortal rubbish. Read this great work, and you will be made to see what fine, noble creatures we men are. She strode to and fro. And how a woman's first duty is to recognise her inferiority to us, and be womanly. Damn it! As soon as I saw what poor Marguerite had to do, I told her I should either have to go out and kill someone, 
or produce an antidote. And then it occurred to me to tell the truth about one of the leading popular heroes of history. She bowed in the direction of the canvas. I began to feel better at once. I got the costume for a friend of the learned Sam's, and I've ruined it. I'm feeling quite bright tonight. She gazed at George with her cold blue eyes, arraigning in his person the whole sex which she thought she despised, but which her deepest instinct it was to counterfeit. George, while admiring, was a little dismayed. She was sarcastic. She had brains and knowledge and ideas. There was an intellectual foundation to her picture, and she could paint like a witch. Oh, she was ruthlessly clever. Well, he did not like her. What he wanted, though he would not admit it, was old Omway's womanly woman. And especially in that hour, he wanted the womanly woman. What's Marguerite up to? he asked quietly. After the heat and the toil of the day, she's beautifying herself for your august approval, said Ag icily. I expect she's hurrying all she can, but naturally you expect her to be in a permanent state of waiting for you, fresh out of the cotton wool. The next instant, Marguerite appeared from the cubicle or dressing room which had been contrived in a corner of the studio to the left of the door. She was in her plain, everyday attire, but she had obviously just washed, and her smooth hair shone from the brush. Well, George. Well, Marguerite. Both spoke casually. Celia Ag was the only person in the world privy to their engagement, but they permitted themselves no freedoms in front of her. As Marguerite came near to George, she delicately touched his arm, nothing more. She was smiling happily, but as soon as she looked close at his face under the lamp, her face changed completely. He thought, she understands there's something up. She said, not without embarrassment, George, I really must have some fresh air. I haven't had a breath all day. Is it raining? No, would you like to go for a walk? Oh, I should. He was very grateful and also impressed by the accuracy of her intuitions and her quick resourcefulness. She had comprehended at a glance that he had a profound and urgent need to be alone with her. She was marvellously comforting, precious beyond a price. All his susceptibilities, wounded by the scene at Alexandra Grove, and further irritated by Ag, were instantaneously salved and soothed. Her tones, her scarcely perceptible gesture of succour, produced the assuaging miracle she fulfilled her role to perfection. She was a talented and competent designer. But, as the helpmeet of a man, she had genius. His mind dwelt on her with rapture. "'You'll be going out as soon as you've changed, dear?' she said affectionately to Ag. "'Yes,' answered Ag, who at the mirror was wiping from her face the painted signs of alcoholism. She'd thrown off the bag a week. "'You'd better take the key with you. You'll be back before I am.' She sat down on one of the draped settees which were beds in disguise, and Marguerite got a hat, cloak and gloves. While George was resuming his overcoat, which Marguerite held for him, Ag suddenly sprang up and rushed towards them. "'Good night, Flora MacDonald,' she murmured in her deep voice in Marguerite's ear, put masculine arms round her and kissed her. It was a truly remarkable bit of male impersonating, as George had to admit, though he resented it. Then she gave a short, harsh laugh. "'Good night, old Ag,' said Marguerite, with sweet responsiveness, and smiled ingenuously at George. George, impatient, opened the door, and the damp wind swept anew into the studio. 
4. It was a fine night. The weather had cleared and the pavements were drying. George, looking up in a pause of the eager conversational exchanges, drew tonic air mightily into his lungs. Where are we? he asked. Tight Street, said Margaret. That's the Tower House. And she nodded towards the formidable skyscraper which another grade of landlord had erected for another grade of artists who demanded studios from the capitalist. Marguerite, the Chelsea girl, knew Chelsea if she knew nothing else. Her feet turned corners in the dark with assurance, and she had no need to look at street signs. George regarded the short thoroughfare made notorious by the dilettantism, the modishness and the witticisms of art. It had an impressive aspect. From the portico of one highly illuminated house, a crimson carpet stretched across the pavement to the gutter. Some dashing blade of the brush had maliciously determined to affront the bourgeois Sabbath. George stamped on the carpet. He hated it because it was not his carpet. And he swore to himself to possess that very carpet, or its indistinguishable brother. I was a most frightful ass to leave that letter lying about, he exclaimed. Oh, George, she protested lovingly. It could so easily happen, a thing like that could. It was just bad luck. A cushion. The divinest down cushion. That was what she was. She was more. She defended a man against himself. She restored him to perfection. Her affectionate faith was a magical inspiration to him. It was, really, the greatest force in the world. Most women would have agreed with him, however tactfully, that he had been careless about the letter and Adela would certainly have berated him in her shrewish, thin tones. Alois would have been sarcastic, scornfully patronising him as a boy. And what would Ang have done? They might have forgiven and even forgotten, but they would have indulged themselves first. Marguerite was exteriorly simple. She would not perhaps successfully dominate her drawing-room. She would cut no figure playing with lives of the wheel of an automobile. After all, she would no doubt be ridiculous in the costume of Bonnie Prince Charlie. But she was finer than the other women whose images floated in his mind, and she was worth millions of them. He was overpowered by the sense of his good fortune in finding her. He went cold at the thought of what he would have missed if he had not found her. He would not try to conceive what his existence would be without her, for it would be unendurable. Of this he was convinced. Do you think you'll go talking about it? George asked, meaning, of course, Mr. Hayne. More likely she will, said Marguerite. He positively could feel her lips tightening. Futile to put in a word for Mrs. Hayne. When he described the swoon, Marguerite had shown neither concern nor curiosity, not the slightest. Antipathy to her stepmother had radiated from her almost visibly in the night, like the nimbus round a street lamp. Well, she did not understand. She was capable of injustice. She was quite wrong about Mrs. Hayne. What matter? Her whole being was centralised on himself. He was aware of his superiority. He went on quietly. If the old man gets chattering at the office, the Orgreaves will know, and the next minute the news will be in the five towns. I can't possibly let my people hear from anybody else of my engagement before they hear from me. However, if it comes to the point, we'll tell everybody. Why not? Oh, but dearest, it was so nice, it being a secret, it was the loveliest thing in the world. Yes, it was, Johnny. Perhaps father will feel differently in the morning, and then you can... 
He won't, said George flatly. You don't know what a state he's in. I didn't tell you. He called me a spy in the house, a dirty spy. Likewise a jackanapes. Doubtless a delicate illusion to my tender years. He didn't. He did, honestly. So that was what upset you, sir, Marguerite murmured. It was her first admission that she had noticed his agitation. Did I look so upset then? George, you look terrible. I felt the only thing to do was for us to go out at once. Oh, but surely I wasn't so upset as all that, said George, finding in Marguerite's statement a reflection upon his ability to play the part of an imperturbable man of the world. Ag didn't seem to see anything. Ag doesn't know you like I do. She insinuated her arm into his. He raised his hand and took hold of hers. In the left pocket of his overcoat he could feel the somewhat unwieldy key of the studio. He was happy. The domestic feel of the key completed his happiness. Of course, I can't stay on there, said he. At father's? Oh, I do wish father hadn't talked like that. She spoke sadly, not critically. I suppose I'm asleep there tonight, but I'm not going to have my breakfast there tomorrow morning. No fear. I'll have it up at town. Lucas will be able to put me up to some new digs. He always knows about that sort of thing. Then I'll drive down and remove all my worldly in a four-wheeler. He spoke with jauntiness in his role of male who is easily equal to any situation. But she said in a low, tenderly commiserating voice, It's a shame. Not a bit, he replied. Then he suddenly stood still and brought her to a halt. Under his erratic guidance they had turned along Dilk Street and northwards again past the botanical garden. And this is Paradise Row, he said, surveying the broad street which they had come into. Paradise Row, she corrected him softly. No, dear, it's Queen's Road. It runs into Pimlico Road. I mean, it used to be Paradise Row, he explained. It was the most fashionable street in Chelsea, you know. Everybody, if there was anybody, lived here. Oh, really? She showed an amiable desire to be interested, but her interest did not survive more than a few seconds. I didn't know. I know Paradise Walk. It's that horrid little passage down there on the right. She had not the historic sense, and she did not understand his mood, did not in the slightest degree suspect that events had been whipping his ambition once more, and that, at that moment, he was enjoying the 17th and even the 16th centuries, and thinking of Sir Thomas More and Miss More, and all manner of grandiose personages and abodes, and rebelling obstinately against the fact that he was as yet a non-entity in Chelsea, whereas he meant in the end to yield to nobody in distinction and renown. He knew that she did not understand, and he would not pretend to himself that she did. There was no reason why she should understand. He did not particularly want her to understand. Let's have a look at the river, shall we? he suggested, and they moved towards Cheney Walk. Dearest, she said, you must come and have breakfast at the studio tomorrow morning. I shall get it myself. But Ag won't like me poking my nose in for breakfast. You great silly, don't you know she simply adores you? He was certainly startled by this remark, and he began to like Ag. Old Ag, not she, he protested, pleased but a little embarrassed. Will she be up? You'll see whether she'll be up or not. Nine o'clock's the time, isn't it? They reached the gardens of Cheney Walk. Three bridges hung their double chaplets of lights over the dark river. 
on the southern shore the shapes of high trees waved mysteriously above the withdrawn woodland glades that in daytime were Battersea Park. Here and there a tiny red gleam gave warning that a pier jutted out into the stream, but nothing moved on the water. The wind that swept clean the pavements had unclouded ten million stars. It was a wind unlike any other wind that ever blew, at once caressing and roughly challenging. The two, putting it behind them, faced eastward, and began to pass one by one the innumerable inaught gas lamps of Chelsea Embankment, which stretched absolutely rectilinear in front of them for a clear mile. No soul but themselves was afoot. But on the left rose gigantic and splendid houses, palaces designed by modern architects, vying with almost any houses in London, some dark, others richly illuminated and full of souls, luxurious, successful and dominant. As the girl talked creatively about the breakfast, her arm pressed his, and his fingers clasped her acquiescent fingers, and her chaste and confiding passion ran through him in powerful voltaic currents from some inexhaustible source of energy in her secret heart. It seemed to him that since their ride home in the hansom from the promenade concert, her faculty for love had miraculously developed. He divined great deeps in her, and deeps beyond those deeps. The tenderness which he felt for her was inexpressible. He said not a word, keeping to himself the terrific resolve to which she, and the wind, and the spectacular majesty of London inspired him. He and she would live regally in one of those very houses, and people should kowtow to her because she was the dazzling wife of the renowned young architect George Cannon and he would show her to Mrs. John Orgreave and to Lois, and those women should acknowledge in her a woman incomparably their superior. They should not be able to hide their impressed astonishment when they saw her. Nothing of all this did he impart to her, as she hung, supported and inspiring, on his arm. He held it all in reserve for her. And then, thinking again for a moment of what she had said about Ag's liking for him, he thought of Ag's picture, and of Marguerite's design which had originated the picture. It was a special design, new for Marguerite, whose bindings were generally of conventional patterns. It was to be paid for at a special price because of its elaborateness. She had worked on it for nearly two days. In particular, she had stayed indoors during the whole of Sunday to finish it. And it was efficient, skilful, as good as it could be. It had filled her life for nearly two days, and he had not even mentioned it to her. In the ruthless egotism of the ambitious man he had forgotten it, and forgotten to imagine sympathetically the contents of her mind. Sharp remorse overcame him. She grew noble and pathetic in his eyes. Contrast her modest and talented industry with the exacting, supercilious, incapable idleness of a Lois. "'That design of yours is jolly good,' he said shortly, without any introductory phrases. She perceptibly started. Oh, George, I'm so glad you think so. I was afraid. You know, it was horribly difficult. They give you no chance. I know. I know. You've come out of it fine. She was in heaven. He also, because it was so easy of him to put her there. He glanced backwards a few hours into the past, and he simply could not comprehend how it was that he'd been so upset by the grotesque scene with Mr. Hame in the basement of number eight. Everything was all right. Everything was utterly for the best. 
End of part one, chapter five, part two.